the Feast of St. Luke, our patronal feast day, which we celebrate this morning, is near and dear to my heart. As many of you know, this is the third parish named St. Luke's where I have served as a priest in less than nine years of ordained ministry. Some of you may also know that prior to serving at any of those three churches, William and I were married on St. Luke's Day, October 18th in 2008. To add to all that, two years ago, October 15th, 2017, was my very first Sunday with you. We commemorated St. Luke on that day as well. And after two years and five days as your rector, I have to say I think we have a winning combination here. You are a sweet group of folks and a wonderful faith community. And I love you. Thanks be to God. So happy St. Luke's Day. About four years ago, I was preaching at St. Luke's Long Beach, and I decided to write an epic poem on our patron saint. Sadly, I only got as far as writing one verse. More like an epic fail. (laughs) But on my first Sunday here in 2017, two years ago, I composed two more verses to mark the occasion. And today, I am pleased to announce the debut of two new verses to this now ongoing epic comeback of a literary feat. I would now like to share my epic poem with you in its entirety thus far. Verse one. St. Luke, St. Luke, he ain't no fluke, nor is he a religious kook, but he is the evangelizing duke And he wrote my favorite gospel book. Verse 2. Hold your applause, please. (laughs) Now it may come to you as shock that Luke, he was a medical doc who also wrote in Greek a lot. So don't go saying he's a crock. Verse 3. In fact, 25% is what he wrote of the New Testament. All while companionship to Paul he lent. So how about that, lady and gent? These are the two new ones now. Verse 4. You know he wrote the book of Acts in his spare time when he was feeling relaxed. With stories of post-resurrection facts. Missionary journeys, miracles, healings, church growth. It nothing lacks. Finally, verse 5. They say Luke was a great physician. To counter that claim, I am in no position. But he truly excelled as an evangelician. Because looking at you today, I see his words are coming to fruition. Thank you very much. That's all right. You can do that. I can tell by all your faces that you are in shock and awe at such genius. (sighs) Today I want to hone in on one particular phrase in the gospel reading from Luke. Jesus has returned to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee and he is asked to read a passage from Isaiah at his local synagogue. The one he chooses is this. You just heard it. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because Jesus deliberately chose that particular text when he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, you know he's trying to tell us something important. Here at the start of his ministry, by way of this scripture passage, he announces the blueprint for his good news of salvation. That those who suffer now will be transformed into new life by his message and by their response in faith. But I think many of us kind of gloss over this excerpt from Isaiah in part because it doesn't seem to apply to us. Many of us are not poor or captive or blind or oppressed, at least not in the ways that we consider oppression in our society today. But that last phrase, to let the oppressed go free, is the one I would like to highlight this morning. So for whatever reason, my William is reading through the New Testament in Greek, its original language. You know, Greek rhymes with geek. What can I say? <laughs> but he pointed out to me this week that the word translated as oppressed comes from the Greek verb thrao. And a closer translation of it would be broken by calamity. So Jesus might also be saying, he has sent me to set free those broken by calamity. And I would hazard a guess that that phrase would very much translate into something many of you have experienced at one point or another. I am not aware of anyone over the age of 18 who has not had some form of brokenness or calamity visited upon them by life. The death of a loved one, a broken heart, a serious health crisis, a dream or a desire thwarted. I have friends and relatives older than I am who have never had their love reciprocated, who've never had a relationship. I know people younger than me who've gone through the heartbreak of divorce. And we all know someone who has struggled with addiction or who lives with post-traumatic stress from childhood trauma or abuse. Some of you struggle with growing old, bodies failing, circles of friendship diminishing. And there are countless millions whose suffering is unique to them and known only by God. We have almost all been broken by calamity. It's like a lyric in the Paul Simon song, American Tune. I don't know a soul who's not been battered. I don't have a friend who feels at ease. I don't know a dream that's not been shattered or driven to its knees. It's one of the side effects of living, this calamity. But what Jesus promises when he reads from Isaiah at the start of his ministry this morning is, I am with you through it all. And I am sent by God with a message of love that will heal your brokenness and will get you past those boulders of calamity in your path that keep you from new life. 
Luke the physician is constantly aware of the healing powers of Christ in his narratives, and his gospel is peppered with broken men and women who are transformed when they meet Jesus. Every year can be the year of the Lord's favor, when you accept God's love and let it nestle firmly in your heart. Now, allowing such transformation in is not easy because it often makes more sense to reject Christ's promise of a future transformation in favor of the present inertia or complacency our sorrow brings us every day. This sadness is familiar and takes little work. That joy requires risk and asks everything of us. Yet that's the message Luke has for us time and again in his Gospel and in his Acts of the Apostles. Let go of your calamity and live, or hold on to your brokenness and suffer. In Luke's stories, Jesus constantly offers some version of, set my face before you and live. And it is that invitation to relationship with Christ that we truly celebrate on this feast day of Luke. There is power in these words of Luke. In the early 1800s in India, the British East India Company basically ruled the subcontinent. A young Anglican priest named Henry Martin, whose commemoration day is October 19th, yesterday, traveled to Calcutta in 1805 as a chaplain to this East India Company. As it says in his biography in the book Celebrating the Saints, the expectation was that Henry Martin would minister to the British expatriate community, not to the indigenous peoples. In fact, there was a constant fear of insurrection, and even the recitation of the Magnificat at Evensong was forbidden, lest phrases such as putting down the mighty from their seats and exalting the humble and meek should incite the natives. The Magnificat is a song of Mary, one she proclaims to Elizabeth, her cousin, at the visitation. It is a song found only in Luke, and it speaks of empowerment in the face of injustice, of God's compassion for those who suffer, and of God's leveling of those who would lord it over their fellow human beings. So the CEOs of this 19th century conglomerate were smart enough to know that the power of Luke's words in Mary's mouth could topple them if heard by those Indians broken by calamity. That's how seriously we should take the gospel according to Luke in our lives. Let it overthrow whatever holds you captive. A little over two weeks ago, I was in Chartres Cathedral in France, one of the final stops of our two-week pilgrimage. Laid into the stone near the back of the church is a centuries-old labyrinth, a pattern set into the floor, 40 feet in diameter, with a winding path that you can use for a sort of walking meditation. Most of you have, or many of you have seen such things. Uh, the one there looks like this, if you can see it. All of those uh, kind of brown lines are the path that you take, and you see the round center in the middle. 
Because it's usually covered over by chairs, the labyrinth is only available to walk on on Fridays. And even then it remains covered when there's a special event going on. We were lucky and got to walk it. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes if you're not rushing because the path is long and twisty. Your journey eventually takes you to the center where there is a larger space for arriving and for praying. Then you walk back out along the same path. Over the centuries, pilgrims to Chartres Cathedral ended their journeys at the labyrinth, winding their way through to its center, their final spot of arrival after weeks or months of walking. On the afternoon we were there, a small group arrived to walk the labyrinth. Eight boys, teenagers, some with palsied limbs, others with leg braces, others with what seemed to be Down syndrome. Each had their own caretaker, young men in their 20s, who helped them. It took them a long time to walk it, but they seemed very focused on the path occasionally yelping loudly in frustration or joy, I, I couldn't tell which. But they all made it in and back out. One boy and his caretaker sat down nearby to rest. After a moment, the boy turned to his adult companion and started gently stroking the hair along the side of his head. And as he did this, he said to the man, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, over and over again, stroking his hair, saying those words for a long time. This boy, broken by calamity, this man, his companion along the path, I am with you through it all. My prayer is that we one day find ourselves caressing the hairs on Jesus' head, repeating those same grateful words. Our journey ended, our healing complete. God bless us on this, our feast day, and always. Amen. Amen.